Welcome to Healthy Brain, Happy Body, a podcast from the Northeast Region Biofeedback Society. I'm Dr. Saul Rosenthal, a health psychologist in the Boston area, and your host as we investigate the incredible connections between brain and body. Our guide today is Dr. Christine Terrell Baker, a clinical psychologist with extensive experience using cognitive behavior therapy, mindfulness-based stress reduction, mindfulness-based psychotherapy, and PIR-HEG neurofeedback. She has used her 24 years of experience as a clinician, leader, and teacher to develop a model for incorporating PAR-HEG into clinical practice that she calls the Stress Regulation and Learning Model. She recently published on the impact of her approach on anxiety, depression, stress, and trauma. She's giving a free webinar on November 7th for the NRBS about her approach. I asked her about her choice of the PIR-HEG and how she came to use it in her practice. Christine, welcome to Healthy Brain, Happy Body. Thank you so much for having me, Saul. So on, on November 7th, you're going to be giving a talk to the NRBS, and it's, it's titled Harnessing the Power of the Neurofeedback Relationship, Intentional Practice for Better Patient Outcomes. So there's obviously a lot even just in the title for us that we could talk about. Right. But I just want to start uh, with just the, the, the neurofeedback itself. Most of our listeners are familiar with EEG-based neurofeedback. Right. But I understand you use a different type. Can you tell us a little bit about your your use of neurofeedback? Sure. So I use PIRHEG neurofeedback that was uh, that was invented by Jeff Carmen. I think you had him on not too long ago with a question and answer kind of format on that type of neurofeedback. Basically, we're looking at heat as a byproduct of cellular activity in the brain as an indicator of what part of the brain is active, um, rather than uh, looking at brain waves. And the focus is on training the prefrontal cortex. The the, um, sensors sit right in the center of the forehead. In a a regular session, what would happen is a Hollywood film is used as a stimulus. Uh, The person has a headband on with two little infrared sensors that sit in the uh, on the prefrontal cortex right in the center of the forehead. The movie serves as this emotional stimulus. It plays for five minutes. After five minutes, we change a setting that basically says uh, freeze the movie when heat decreases by a tiny fraction uh, in the forehead in the prefrontal area. And when that happens, the movie freezes and a bar graph pops on the screen to show whether heat is moving up or down or whether uh, the, the equipment is picking up a change in the, the, the heat coming off the prefrontal cortex. And um, people learn basically how to reliably increase that heat uh, coming off the prefrontal cortex as a byproduct of using that part of their brain and the movie will play again. And that kind of thing happens five, six, seven times during a session. And basically that's 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 the uh, entire format, meaning like each person that comes in is doing essentially the same thing. It's not uh, geared to look at the brain ahead of time and say, hey, this needs to, to be worked on or that needs to be worked on. It's the basic premise is, better prefrontal function is going to result in a lot of potential positive changes for the person. In my work, I have over the last five years applied this method to working with people 
um, around common mental health problems. Um, Jeff Carmen's work is really around migraine headaches, and that's been published and shown to be useful, this particular type of neurofeedback. Um, in my work, I'm applying this um, to a much more general mental health population. And what, what drew you to the, uh, the HEG versus the EEG? Really, the ease of implementation, uh, I, you know, to say, first of all, Jeff Carmen lives and works, you know, a few miles away. Um, <laughs> so uh, went to his local training, which honestly, you know, ha- had people from all over the place involved in it. So started out with that because I was exposed to that, but really probably would not have pursued it further if it was not so easy to implement in a kind of regular office setting, which I thought had a lot of potential for more global implementation in clinical mental health. And in your working, you said with sort of the general mental health population, so anxiety, depression, things like that. Yeah, yep, anxiety, depression, PTSD, um, some ADHD, anger problems, relationship problems. And, and you're finding that, that the PIRHEG works for sort of a, a variety, and, and you just published an article uh, in, in neuroregulation about that. Why do you think that is? I mean, given, given you know, I, I do EEG, um, neurofeedback, I do HEG as well. Why do you think it works, that HEG works so nicely when you're just focused on the, the prefrontal cortex? Well, m- my view is that enhancing function in the prefrontal cortex HEG seems to be very quick to show results in enhanced executive function. So pretty quickly within the first five sessions, people's um, ability to inhibit uh, their emotional reactions um, comes online uh, very, you know, potently. Um, So I think that the increase in activity there um, or that, as Jeff Carmen would say, the dominance of that area increases to the point where they have access to the the, the functions of that area of the brain rather, rather quickly. And that's sort of the basis for my talk on November 7th, in, in a sense, that because these effects come on quickly and reliably, um, and that we can track it to a lot of the functions of executive function, we can kind of use this opportunity in a unique way that, um, you know, a lot of things work in treat in mental health treatment and in therapy, but because, you know, sometimes our view of what's working and how it's working is diluted by the time frame that it takes to, to, to change and to see those shifts in people, that I think this is just a unique, unique opportunity to make a lot of progress with people and particularly to support their developing what what I've uh, what my research calls um, coping self-efficacy. So really, their their belief in their in their capacity to um, produce the behaviors necessary to do uh, emotional coping coping in a new and different way. Um, so a lot of what I focus on is how to utilize people's new experiences in that area to kind of help them gain a sort of gain a view of their capacity and then also to integrate that into their own their narrative their their view of themselves in some way 
In in the article in neuroregulation, you looked across a number of different uh, symptoms, if you want to call them that, or conditions. Right. Uh, right. What led you to choose those particular ones? Are these are these sort of the crux of your caseload, or were there things that stood out? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the patients, it was basically just everyone who was coming through our program, um, and they happened to fall into these categories of anxiety and depression and uh, PTSD and things like that. So they weren't selected necessarily. They were they were self-selecting to experience their this treatment. But really, you know, from my, again, my way of thinking about things, anxiety and depression are sort of, you know, the expression, one, one way our nervous system, nervous system expresses itself. And, you know, PTSD is a, another sort of expression of it. Of course, you know, that, that takes into account this idea that many people might fit into many different categories, depending on how you look at that. So really, that's why I kind of focused on this idea of like common mental health problems. Many of the things you would see in just a uh, clinical mental health practice. And could you tell us a little bit about what you found? Yeah, sure. So first of all, you know, for about the first hundred people that I use PIR HEG with, started out using it with people that I knew really well, and I could just kind of write down their observations, their changes in behavior just to kind of get a sense of what was going to, how this was going to work, if it was going to work at all. And then moving into really collecting as much qualitative data on what people were telling me about their experiences. Um, So the article details uh, quotes from my patients, my early patients, and quotes kind of falling into a, a few different categories like uh, a more acquieted uh, uh, nervous system, like you were saying, uh, inhibition and less emotional reactivity, uh, quotes that that, uh, represent sort of this new ability to have a larger window of tolerance around their emotional experiencing, quotes related to people's self-agency, so things about them initiating or taking action or setting boundaries, all kinds of self-agency sort of things and then self-observations and learning. Uh, One of the reasons why my model is called stress regulation and learning is, again, in looking at this overall, it seems that one of the qualities of a brain that's healing is a brain that becomes more open to learning. So all of that is qualitative data that's in the article, and then looking at these quantitative measures, looking at anxiety, uh, depression, coping self-efficacy, general global self-efficacy, and then this measure, which I created from my early uh, patients' reports called limbic overload. And and looking at that, you know, what are the results on these measures after five sessions of PIR, HEG, after 10 sessions, after 15 sessions, and finding, you know, after five sessions that most of these things, uh, anxiety, depression, coping self-efficacy, limbic overload, all uh, decrease significantly, statistically significant results, and continue to, to change after 10 and after 15 sessions. So anxiety and depression are going down, limbic overload, or this general sense of being overwhelmed is going down, and uh, global self-efficacy and... Um, 
our general self-efficacy and coping self-efficacy are increasing. So I was able to, to really to look at that um, and just really show the potency of the results. We're talking about people moving from like a, a moderate to severe level of anxiety and depression to a, a, a minimal level of anxiety and depression within 15 sessions. Effect sizes are very large. And so really wanted to just demonstrate the potency of the system to have an impact on these kinds of disorders in a relatively short period of time. Well, it was a really impressive design. I mean, it's very systematic, which is really nice to see in our field. And the results were actually really impressive as well, just the drops in levels uh, from in the depression. I think at the end you had no severe depress- depression where you started with um, right. anxiety was very similar. And so hopefully um, either you or somebody who has the, the resources can put together more research in this area because I think this is a great a great direction for us to go as a field to, to do more research. And, and it's so possible with, with the... Uh, P-R-H-E-G work. Yeah, right. You can, you know, you can accumulate sessions re- relatively easily. Yeah, so that that was my, my, really, I wanted to create sort of a basis for what my work is all about. So I didn't want to kind of uh, just rely on kind of this loose connection <laughs> to EEG neurofeedback or the migraine data, try to just really kind of clarify as, you know, in, in as uh, sophisticated a way as I could, like, what am I seeing here? And is, you know, in what way can I tell that story? And then also, like you said, just kind of try to inspire more research. And, and really, uh, you know, again, from my point of view, being a fan of these relatively easy to implement kinds of techniques, just, you know, again, if the if the cost is little and the gain is potentially great, it creates sort of this this dissonance with what are we doing and why are we not doing more of it? So the PARHEG can help improve the, the brain's ability to inhibit a lot of these impulses and you can use that to help your clients learn the skills that they need for what you call a sort of to cope to, and to know that they're coping. Right. And so what, what I'm uh, really doing is witnessing their new function, right? So very quickly, they're telling me examples of new function. And I'm hearing that putting it sort of uh, in play in our conversations as sort of, oh, that makes sense, that would be expected, given what we're doing with your brain and that new learning that's happening. So, you know, an example, I'll just give this like really quick example, but someone talked about having a flashback uh, in between, you know, after the the first or le- after the first couple of neurofeedback sessions, had a um, trauma flashback and said that it immediately triggered suicidal ideation. And uh, then she was able to immediately recognize that it was that those were just thoughts. And she could, as she said, I could move away from it. And so noticing sort of what goes into that kind of a response, right? That's a coping response. It's a re- reaction first and then coping sort of with it. And the form of that, noticing how that changes from when the person first walks in and just sort of says, I'm suicidal or I can't control this or I feel, you know, I feel helpless when I, when I have these experiences. So 
kind of just kind of knowing what you're looking for in terms of these changes, following them, and then having the conversation with the person about how that plays out in their life um, and how that builds confidence over time. So part of our job becomes noticing when our clients are coping and kind of highlighting that and coaching them through more coping. Yeah, exactly. I kind of see it as like uh, building momentum. The more we notice those performance accomplishments, um, the more momentum they have and the more confidence they have. So it's not something that you're teaching them, like this is how to cope at a moment like this. They're already doing it and you're witnessing it, orienting them, facilitating it, really building a new, you know, Bandura's theory of self-efficacy basically says that performance accomplishments, times when we're able to uh, execute the behavior that we want, is the biggest source of information on in, uh, in terms of our internal perception of self-efficacy, right? So being able to notice those performance accomplishments as that person integrates that into their sense of themselves, that provides a source of uh, self-perpetuating confidence in coping, which I think can happen, can really be instigated very early on, at least with PIRHEG neurofeedback, and seems to just sort of accumulate with time. So it gives them the, the space, I guess, the mental space to begin to notice that they're functioning well, and then we get to sort of enhance that. Right, exactly. Yep, yep. Yeah, I was wondering. I was wondering how the neurofeedback and the and the sort of more traditional therapy play off each other or integrated. Uh, and, and I think what you're what you're laying out is a really nice model. Yeah, it's so the the model that I have sort of come up with I call the stress regulation and learning model, and it's really about uh, sort of a new foundation being laid through neurofeedback of um, coping and stress tolerance, emotional tolerance. And that when we uh, reflect on that with the person and help empower them with it, it can result in this enduring confidence in their coping, which predicts health, really. The more people can deal with the stressors that come up in their lives and face them in a way that can acknowledge and release the tension associated with those stressors, the less they're stored in the body, the less the pathways of disease kind of can develop. So I think to really recognize our role is beyond sort of the immediate improvement in symptoms and sort of what the framework um, allows us to potentially uh, lay out in terms of enhanced functioning over the longer term. Yeah, I really, I really like what you're saying because I, I think about all of my, or a lot of my psychotherapy patients and how hard it is to get them to that point where they are giving themselves enough time not to react or, or when they do to even realize that they have not reacted. Right. And I can see where the, uh, the, this sort of work where you're kind of building up the ability of the brain to inhibit itself can give them that space. Right. And for me, it's also about, it's like two things go hand in hand. So one, one thing is about that inhibition, right? And that pause and that space 
to um, not react in the same way as they would normally, uh, in, you know, in a defensive, reactive space. But the other thing that happens almost simultaneously, or it seems, and and I don't know uh, your experience with this in EEG neurofeedback as well, I assume that it's similar, that people become more awake, so they're more connected to their own experiences, right? So at the same time as they don't have to overreact emotionally to deal with the tension that stress, uh, that stress uh, causes or instigates, they can have more uh, experience of emotions like sadness, or they can connect to anger in a new way, kind of broaden their ability to, to be in contact with their emotions without getting overwhelmed, which means that they start to use emotions as information just naturally. I have people within, you know, seven or eight sessions saying, I'm not afraid of my emotions anymore. You know, I, I'm, I was sad and I kind of knew why I was sad and it was okay. I didn't need to not be sad in that moment. And so the other thing I feel like we're witnessing a lot is that kind of new experience of having their own, of having more information about themselves without dissociating or numbing out or disconnecting from their experiences. And so that also um, comes with the, you know, the witnessing of people's ability to, to have more contact with themselves to see their true natures in some way, um, unclouded by their defensive responses. So that's another really key aspect. Tuning into stress responses and inhibition and performance accomplishments, but then also tuning into the breadth of their connectedness with themselves and their experiences. I wonder if you might talk a little bit more about that and how you might use that in the therapy. Sure. So, so one of the things that I sort of understand or seem to understand as a result of working with people in this way is that people's experiences are sort of often buried under sort of this inhibited grief. So meaning like when we are in survival mode, we don't grieve. Um, we don't take stock of our experiences or what we've lost we don't resonate with sort of how things have affected us personally. We generally just sort of go on with the battle wounds and we find a way to survive in spite of it. What I, again, what I see with using PIRHEG um, is that when there's this greater inhibition in the brain and people start to reconnect to their experience, it seems to me that often what is coming up for people is a sense of grief like, wow, that really affected me. Or, I, you know, now that I'm thinking about that, I realize this, this, and this, you know, about that, about my, ex my direct experience of that event or that circumstance. And um, people can start to notice and feel like a certain level of sadness or a connectivity to what they actually experienced. And that can be overwhelming for people. It can happen very spontaneously, where all of a sudden they're re relating to something, probably from their past, th through this lens of, um, wow, I can see more of that, I can see more of how it's affected me, and there's some sort of emotional experiencing of that. 
And I would call that healthy grieving where the, you know, when when tension moves enough in our system, arousal moves enough that we can acknowledge previously unacknowledged experience and release it in some way. And that, to me, that's kind of part of that teaching role, again, highlighting role to kind of orient people to that is not a step backwards, right? So being in contact with that is does not mean you are all of a sudden getting more depressed again. That is uh, an awareness that's coming from your system's capacity to be in touch with it. And uh, that you don't need to do much, you, you don't necessarily need to do much with it, except for sort of acknowledge it. And as you acknowledge it, the, some of the, the energy moves, and you're able to sort of incorporate it and go forward. What I see is that sometimes people get really afraid of what they're experiencing. And they also are used to kind of this more traditional model where more negative emotions mean somebody's getting worse. And that's not necessarily the kind of the progression of this. Uh, so it just seems like this whole, again, being ready as a clinician to to uh, support people through the, these kinds of experiences, um, to use them as like uh, a new view of themselves uh, as they're claiming more of their ex- own experiences, they're claiming themselves more. And so to witness it, to be ready for it, to help them manage it, even though essentially in many cases they are already managing it by acknowledging it and releasing it. So I just think that grief is a is a way to connect maybe to our ancestral kind of, you know, our birthright to kind of like have experiences and somehow be able to release them and move through them. So the experience of grief, it's, it's, we, we think of it sort of superficially anyway as negative, but you're saying, well, it's actually a powerful connector to who we are as individuals, but also even sort of our shared history. Yeah, like we can, you know, of course, right, loss is part of life and, and our, with each experience and our personal uh, takeaways from that experience, there's some amount of loss. It may not be a loss of someone or or maybe a loss of a part of ourselves, it might be loss of a value, it might be loss of a uh, sense of safety or a sense of um, predictability in one's life. But it's those losses when they're unrecognized um, or inhibited as a process that kind of build the tension in the system, right? The accumulation of stress is highly connected to these unprocessed emotional experiences. And so not with everyone, but with several people, they will kind of come straight up to the surface as this process plays out. A very common one would would be uh, things like, um, I've recognized like those things happened to me and I was unprotected. Like that, you know, that's a, one of my experiences was the loss of protection or the, I can see now how that happened. Right. And sort of there, there's a reckoning with the truth of their experience in a way that could, you know, for people that are not functioning as well in, in their executive brain could lead to sort of a decompensation of some sort, but doesn't because, again, it's, it's coming on naturally as sort of part of the way we're made. We're made to be able to, you know, kind of get up on the perch and notice our experience and utilize it in some way. 
But when we don't have access to the prefrontal cortex, we don't have access to that self-sensing system that helps us do that. So the, the PIRHEG both gives the space but also shores up the ability to experience these these uh, emotions that may have decompensated a per- person previously, but the work you're doing with them uh, really shores them up. Yeah, and, and I really think, again, very similar to the performance accomplishments, I'm not um, I'm witnessing it. It's coming to the surface. We're not working on those those uh, old traumatic events. They're telling me through the about them, partly through their new connectedness with them. Do you tend to start with primarily HEG training and not a lot of talk, or and then shift shift over as the client shows improvements, or how, how do you think about your your cases? Yeah, that's how I think about it. I mean, in the first several sessions, you know, so HEG neurofeedback is taking about maybe 20 or 25 minutes of the the time we're spending together, something like that. In the first several sessions, my focus is on, well, overall, my focus is generally on stress in people's lives and how they're experiencing it and reacting to it. And so for the first, you know, for the assessment and then several sessions, the focus is on sort of like, what is it like now? You know, without the assumption that anything's changing right away, right? And that it's interesting because that in, by opening the question in that way, people become more aware of where they're stuck. They become more aware of kind of what's what feels out of their control or what feels like automatic to them. They might be more in touch with what they really want to change because you're focused in that way. It's also easy to catch early glimpses of the changed responses, right? So I might hear someone say something like that about that example I just gave about suicidal ideation and just sort of use that to highlight, and this is one of the roles I'm going to talk about in my talk, this kind of highlight, you know, this role as highlighter, you know, kind of highlight that that might be a glimpse into how they might connect more generally with their experiences where they're just, they have more room. They have more room to observe them rather than to just be part, you know, to be uh, in them and um, and sort of say, you know, if you stop doing neurofeedback today, that probably would go away. You know, we just probably wouldn't get much traction to that. But as you come, you know, we might get some momentum with responses that look like that. So always trying to like look for those successes, build the expectancy that's you know ne- necessary and accurate to what will happen over time, and engage them in this learning process. The highlighter being part of our role. As yeah. This is what this is what I see happening. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You know, one of the things that I you know, and the title of the talk is all about like kind of intentional practice, right? And so that for me, that comes from, you know, doing traditional mental health work and having people come into my office after, you know, going to their 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 regular therapist or having experiences in the past with, with psychotherapy. And what I hear a lot from people is, well, it seems to be helping, Right. I'm not quite sure how I would measure that, basically. 
I think that with neurofeedback, I think that there's a way in which because of the potency of the effects, the speed of them, and the form of them related to some of the things we've been talking about, that we can be more intentional about, oh, that's the desired outcome. What we're talking about right here is the desired outcome. And so let's be intentional to that. And like, let's measure how, how you're getting there. And so one way I measure is just through this kind of interviewing process that I'm talking about, kind of just being curious about their stressors and their responses to them. Really try to, in some way, when they talk to me about their experiences, I don't ask follow-up questions about the stories of their life, but more of their actual behavior responses. And then the other way that I collect that kind of information is through quantitative measures, which I give before neurofeedback and then every five sessions. And that's another source of information um, that we use, you know, to think through what does this mean about capacity, what's changing and what's not and why. So kind of bringing that lens of curiosity and new information to the table. When you say capacity, you're measuring, sort of looking at the capacity. Do you mean their capacity to kind of live their lives, to have this uh, coping self-efficacy? Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's what I'm talking about for the most part. Yeah. So their ability to handle emotions, to be in contact with themselves, to um, be able to tolerate their uh, emotional experiences. You know, some people it's uh, building capacity so that they can do, for instance, the work of, uh, you know, more more complex trauma work that they might need to engage in or want to engage in. So, you know, what are all the possibilities that stem sort of from this this uh, new function that you're experiencing? Um, and many people feel ready to take on things that they didn't feel ready for before as a result of sort of how they're coping and what overwhelms them and what they feel like they have to avoid and what they no longer have to avoid. Yeah, I really like your model and how it, it it's kind of expanding, I think, what we traditionally think of as neural feedback and really trying to integrate it with with, the ther- with therapy. I think a lot of us are doing that, but um, I, I like, I mean, this is, seems like a very systematic approach to thinking about it and developing it and making it work, which is really nice. You've talked about working with, with sort of a, a variety of mental health issues. Uh, are, are there any that you found... Uh, any sorts of conditions that don't seem to really change much with with the neural feedback or take a lot longer? Certainly had some people that have inflammatory conditions, uh, lupus, um, other autoimmune dis- disorders, someone who got COVID twice during the course of neurofeedback. I mean, there's certainly like physical things that slow down progress or reverse progress um, for a while in the treatment. So for those people, just continuing with more sessions than I, than I would normally necessarily need to with other people seems to, to matter. I don't know that the, the cases that really have not shown progress they're diverse. So I can say that you know a couple of the people that I'm thinking about have had um, really extensive developmental trauma, um, particularly with a lot of shutdown, a lot of meaning like their system has collapsed and they are uh, disconnected from their experience. 
I've had as many of those people really see effects with the PIRHEG and a few of them really not see effects with it. So hard to know what the difference is in those cases, but they don't seem to be falling into one particular like diagnostic category, for instance. Although I'm not seeing people with schizophrenia, I think I had one person, you know, that was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, you know, maybe some bipolar twos, but like bipolar one. But other than that, it's, you know, sort of a mixture of anxiety, depression, personality disorders, trauma. So, so this is sort of a, a bit of a wonky question um, and, and, and may only appeal, uh, appeal to those of us who use the PIRHEG. This is a, an issue that's been debated on the listserv. It has to do with selection of movies. Oh, okay. Um, so, so, and Jeff was was on the the podcast and um, also gave the the, the uh, talk to NRBS, and I'll, I'll put links for both of those into the show notes for this this episode. And he talked about choosing movies or videos that sort of had some emotional valiance, but not too much. And I'm kind of curious about what your take on that is. Yeah, I think that um, the most important thing in movie selection is the person choosing something that they that resonates with them or sort of has some like connectivity or impact on them personally, um, where they can see themselves in the movie in some way, they can be connected to it in a personal sort of way. Um so what that means is, so there'll be scenes in movies, and maybe you you use the system, so you know that the scenes that are overwhelming, you know, someone's getting beaten, I don't know, something like that, you know, some scary thing is happening, um, and and it won't stop, you know, or it'll stop right after the scene, or for some people it just won't stop at all, but there'll be a, a much more subtle conversation between two people and it'll stop that, you know, and to me, that's salience to our emotional system, you know, what is salient to us, what makes us personally feel threatened or connected or triggered, for lack of a better word. So I think that it's really a personal thing, what movies work for people. Although I have to say, I know that sometimes Jeff talks about it as if it's like, you really have to be very selective and careful. I don't see it that way at all. I think that most movies will work for most people, some slightly better than others. And almost all good movies are good at stirring kind of common human emotional experience. I like to end my conversations with some one thing questions. Okay. What is one thing that our audience should take away from from the discussion? Uh, One thing is that Neurofeedback, you know, is it creates a really uh, clinically rich opportunity to work with people in a new way, um, and for them to shape really the way they see themselves in a new way that has uh, potentially lasting effects. And this is another sort of wonk slash movie question. What what is the one most requested movie in your repertoire? Mm, good question. Um, let's see. Probably it's a might be a tie between hidden figures and the blind side for me it's the princess bride oh the princess bride is also high on the list yes that that gets a lot of traction well well, christine thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast i'm so looking forward to your talk on the 7th 
Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. It's exciting to just have the opportunity to express all of these <laughs> these uh, ideas. You are listening to Healthy Brain, Happy Body. I'm your host, Dr. Saul Rosenthal. Our guide today was Christine Tyrell Baker, a clinical psychologist, thought leader, and teacher who integrates PIR-HEG neural feedback throughout her therapy practice. She's giving a free webinar to the NRBS on November 7th, and you can register by following the link in the show notes. Subscribe to this podcast by clicking the subscribe here link or wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy it, please subscribe, rate us, and leave reviews at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Reviews help us get more listeners, and that's more people who can learn about and benefit from biofeedback and neurofeedback. Also, let us know what you think by sending us email. Our address is healthybrain at nrbs.org. Healthy Brain Happy Body is produced and edited by me. The theme music is Catch It by Coma Media. It is a production of the Northeast Region Biofeedback Society. Go to nrbs.org to find out more about the organization, including our trainings, monthly webinars, and yearly conference. All opinions expressed are those of our guests and not the NRBS. This podcast is not meant to replace advice from qualified healthcare providers. Be sure to join us in our next episode as we continue to explore the keys to our well-being on Healthy Brain, Happy Body. Happy Body.